0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by entering into prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings upon us. We thank you, Father, that even though we didn't deserve a thing, you gave us the most precious person in the universe to die for our sins, our Lord Jesus Christ. And why you raise him from the dead on the third day, and whoever believes in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection will never perish but has eternal life. And, Father, we know that you've also graced us out in every possible way. You've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Father. We just praise you for your glory, your love, your grace, your justice. We ask today, Father, that you would help out the saints in this country and around the world with the controversies and the difficulties and the tragedies that folks are facing. We want to pray also today, Father, that the Spirit would guide us in all that we'll be doing here. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, hello again, everybody. Uh, we'll get started with the message in just a couple of minutes. But first, I'd like to present a few announcements for everybody. Our missionary organization this month has been Grace Prison Ministries. They're a ministry that goes into the prisons and jails, preaches the gospel, and also teaches God's word to men and women who desperately need the hope and challenge that's in God's word for their lives. Please keep them in prayer. If you have the opportunity and the means, please provide financial support for this organization, Grace Prison Ministries. As always, every month at the end of the month, we do prepare a gift To send it along to each ministry, if you'd like to be a part of that, please indicate that on your giving. um, Either by the website, the PayPal, where there is an opportunity to put a note in there. Or if you want to provide a check, obviously just put that, um, that you're directing it to Grace Prison Ministries. Also, speaking of ministries, I want to once again mention this morning the homeless ministry that Bud and Kim Dungan Run. They uh, have a praise report for us this morning. There is a couple that they've been helping out using the finances that we've provided, and uh, they are heroin free. This is a really big deal for them. Um, The the, the wife said uh, she can wear short sleeves again. That's a touching thing for her to say. And uh, Bud reports he's never seen them so happy. So I want to pass that along. Obviously, please keep them in prayer. This is a moment in their lives. They need the steady support and prayers of of the Lord's intercession continuing in their lives. Because uh, this is the last Sunday of September, that means next Sunday is the first Sunday of October. And uh, that means we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So next Sunday, October 4th, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. The title of this morning's message, as always, comes from the passage that we'll be studying today. We're going to begin chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, and the title of today's message is The Office of Overseer. The Office of Overseer. Last week, we wrapped up chapter 2, where Paul was issuing directives to the whole congregation, in particular about proper ways to worship. Again, now here in chapter 3, he is now going to turn to the leadership so let's begin by reading the passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he would not become conceited And fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So that he will not fall into reproach and into the snare of the devil. Now if we think about the big picture of the letter of 1 Timothy, of course we've seen that it's Paul giving directions to Timothy about matters pertaining to the congregation. The life of the congregation, the attacks of false teaching, the manner of worship, and as we'll see today, the leadership. The leadership. And this is where he turns this morning, as we've already seen. Chapter 3 begins with him turning from where he was, which was teaching the congregation about what should and should not be occurring in the worship service. All right, Including the fact that the worship service should be led by men. And including the the kind of deportment and behavior that both the men and the women are expected to um, have in the worship service. But now he's going to turn his attention to the leaders of the assembly. And in verses 1 to 7, he's giving criteria for offices. In other words, there are offices that have been ordained by the Lord to be in the leadership and support of a congregation. And here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Paul is instructing Timothy concerning what the characteristics, the virtues, the behaviors ought to be for those who are in these offices. In verses 1 to 7, the office of overseer is, who, is what he addresses, who he addresses. And now we'll see next week, verses 8 to 13, he's then going to give criteria for the office of deacon, of deacon. Now, as many of you understand, that when we look at an epistle, we have to understand the historical context and the context of what's written in order to get the most meaning out of it. That's always true of things. If you, if you want to understand the meaning of something, you have to see what it was authentically designed to deal with at the, that time. If it's being authentic and true about that, then it's generalizable. We can see it and why it was important in that situation, and then we'll generalize and see how it's also important in ours. And this is, of course, especially true when it comes to leadership. By the way, please turn to another passage, which is in Timothy, I mean in Titus, Titus chapter one, starting in verse five. I want you to see that, remember, these are what are called pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so first and 2 Timothy is directed to Timothy as he remains, remember, in Ephesus, to deal with all the conflicts and difficulties there. Paul also writes to Titus, who's on the island of Crete. That has its own set of challenges. But I want you to see how consistent the criteria for the office of overseer, elder, how they're totally consistent between 1 Timothy and Titus. Let's just quickly look at this passage as well. Titus 1, five, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely... If any man is above reproach. That's how he started with Timothy. That's how he starts with Titus. That's the overarching principle here. That the man must be above reproach. And then he goes on. The husband of one wife. We saw that already in 1 Timothy. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. We saw the children addressed. The children of the man. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. That's almost exactly what we saw Paul writing to Timothy. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, and refute those who contradict. Now, I want you to notice one other thing in this passage in Titus, and that is that the terms elder and overseer are used interchangeably. Notice, he begins by talking about Titus um, appointing elders. Notice in verse 5, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And he goes on to talk about elders, if any man is above reproach and and so forth. Then he continues talking about criteria for this office, only now he uses a second term for it, overseer. And I think, hope you can see that that's good evidence that these are really one in the same office, but used with two different words. All right, And we'll, we'll take a look as to why those two different terms are used. But again, while there is, there is a case that you can say that these are two separate offices, but on balance it's better to see the overseer and elder refer to the same office. They refer to the same office of leadership. The overseer, as a name for it, emphasizes the supervisory nature of this office, to guide and shepherd, overseeing the work of the ministry. On the other hand, elder emphasizes the presiding function, emphasizes the decision-making role that this office also carries with it, and, yes, the discipline role as well. And so there's both terms meaning different aspects of this one office. Now, at this point, you may be wondering how the pastor-teacher fits into all of this. And that's a really good question. Because the, thing, the really simple way to think about this is that pastors and teachers are gifts. They're not offices. You see the difference? There's a gift of what, ha, what a man has been gifted with. okay, And then there's an office. Just like there's the gift of leadership, there's a gift of giving. Right, And those are certainly useful also in the office of elder, for example. The gift of mercy would be very useful for a man who would be in the office of deacon. But they're separate things. There's the gift and there's the office. When it comes to pastor-teacher, the man who possesses this gift can exercise it in different capacities. Not just in the a, in a local congregation. But if you're in a local congregation, having a pastor teacher as an elder has a lot of advantages, as we'll see. We've already seen that every elder has to be able to teach, for example. That the the key that Titus brings out is is, is protecting and preserving God's word. And so to have have a man who is dedicated to God's word certainly is important, actually, at the end of the day, for the group of elders who are the leaders of the local congregation. Now, but there's something noteworthy. I hope you didn't miss, about the list of the qualifications for the office of overseer. Now, turning back to First Timothy, you can go back to First Timothy 3, because that's where we'll be um, for the, from almost all of the message this morning. When I prepare for a message, one of the last things I do is put the title together, the title page. And on that, I also include the scriptures that we're going to. Now, very often it goes to the end of the first line. There's like a lot of them. Well, today, there's like very few. We're going to be mostly in our main passage with a couple of places that we're going to bring into it, like Titus. But I want you to notice something. It talks, for example, just look at verse 2 again. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, we'll deal with that, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. I want you to notice that in verses 2 and 3, very little is said about the duties of an office. I mean, you know, you might expect that if someone is aspiring to an office, the duties, what that person is going to do in the, in the secular world is a pretty important part of the job description. We don't have that here. That's really significant. Why? Because this is addressing the qualities. This is important to keep in mind. The qualities of the man who is fit to serve in that office. In other words, of first importance is the character of the man. I want you to keep that especially in mind as we go through this this morning. That it's the character that, is, that, that, is, that the Lord is focused on when it comes to the proper man for the job, so to speak. Okay. The focus also is what is, on obs- what is observable. Observable. A man who is the husband of one wife. We'll talk about what that means. But temperance, prudence, and respectable, those are all observable qualities of a man. Not on the negative, not addicted to wine. All right. That's a that's a behavior that can be observed um, for the for the good or the bad. Pugnacious. Okay, we're gonna see that just means a brawler, a fighter, someone who always wants to fight. That's observable pretty easily, actually, and so forth. So in addition to the character of the man, which after all is on the inside, right, and we can't see the character of a man. So how do we know the character of a man? By the behavior of the man. And so that's the, so those two things, observable behavior and character, that's what is being presented here. And, and presented not only to Timothy as at that point in time, the one who would be appointing the elder, the overseer, but also to the congregation. Because, folks, you have the right to observe the character through the behavior of men who would lead the congregation. So that's your focus this morning is to say, here's a place where, as it were, I do get to examine the fruit, if you want to put it that way. But again, only for the leaders, all right? It's not said that we should be doing this for every member of the congregation. By the way, that's the opposite of the way that a lot of churches present it. The man is up there trying to, you know, observe and and critique and condemn people for their behavior and and then tries to be immune from it himself. (laughs) It's that's flipped around, yeah. The, the, the issue is the man in the office, all right. Both character and behavior. All right. So, and by the way, not only observable by the church, but as we've all already seen, also by the society of unbelievers outside the church. That's really interesting. You know, we tend to have an insular focus, and it's true that the Word of God, the Epistles of Paul, almost for the most part, are focused about what's going on in the family, in the in the in the church. Itself, But here, when it comes to the leadership, one has to not only account for what's needed inside the church, but also how the outside of the church is looking at the leadership. That's why it's such a tragedy when we have that breaking down, with such that the, that, the, that the public, the press... Um, have all this material to critique and condemn and judge leaders, and what happens? Then they then they start to say it's in you know, that this church is is hypocritical, or you know this we shouldn't be paying attention to that, or you know they should be ashamed. Well, well this criteria is meant to prevent that from happening, and we'll see more about that. The focus again is what's observable. Now, uh, the observable behavior is both positive. And negative. All right. Observable behavior reveals virtues, but it also reveals vices. And while there's more said on the positive side here, there are some things said on the negative side, and we'll see all of that. But the list begins with one character, one virtue that encompasses all the other ones. What is it? Look at verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. What is the overarching characteristic that covers all of the specifics. That's how he writes so often. You know, he puts the, 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 the subject, which is the title sentence, and then he gives the details. We see that quite often with Paul. Well, here, what is the overall banner on this? Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Above reproach. By the way, we see the same thing as we've already read this morning in Titus. I pointed this out. First thing he says is, if any man is above reproach. Okay, everything that he's going to say after that is illustrated. What does it mean to be above reproach? But that is the criteria. Now, I want you to look at verse 7 back. Well, actually, you've stayed in 1 Timothy. I want you to look at verse 7, 1 Timothy 3, 7. Why? Well, that's the last verse in this passage. And so Paul is bracketing the rest of the material With two things that have a lot in common with one another. We've already seen that the headline, above reproach. Now look at the last verse in this list of things that are the criteria for the office of overseer. And he must have a good reputation. That has to do with being above reproach. But notice, with those outside the church. So that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So we have the headline, being above reproach. And at the end, we have the reason why, among others, why this is so important. And that is so that those outside the church would see a a good reputation for the man that's behind the pulpit. And not only that, but all the elders, by the way. It's not just the one who's preaching, because that's one elder, but there are other elders as well that are overseeing and making decisions and so forth. All right. By the way, when it says good reputation, when it says above reproach, I want to tell you something. That doesn't mean sinless perfection, as we're going to see. Some people take that word blameless, and that's the picture they have. You know, you hear the angels singing, ooh, you know. That's not it, all right? By the way, when you look at this list, I'll just throw this out there for for those who um, are of the persuasion that once somebody believes you ought to see fruit right away, and if you don't see the right behavior and all of that, it means they're not saved. You know, we've dealt with that. Particular teaching, heresy. Um, well, it's interesting. One, it would give one pause, I would think, to read this first seven verses. Because remember, he's talking about among the congregation of believers, here are the criteria. Now, if you were to say to somebody that they have to be above reproach, that would presumably mean that some who are actually aspiring to the office, Christians, are not above reproach. The same thing with fighters, right? It means that there were some who were still brawling. There were some that's still addicted to wine and all these other things. They're believers, and yet they got problems. So I would throw that out to people who think that there have to be observable features of of a Christian. And if they're not there yet, it probably means they're not saved. That's, That's baloney, all right? Just to point that out. All right. So, again, the ideal of being above reproach. That represents the whole catalog and forms a bracket with the last verse talking about having a good reputation outside the church. Now, why would it be so important? What does it actually mean to have a good reputation and to be above reproach? Here's what it means. It means to not provide material for the enemy, basically. Don't provide anything that the adversary, whoever that is, could seize upon to level a damning accusation, either against the man and by by association, the whole congregation. This is the key. Why? Because the church has adversaries. We tend to not always think about this that way, but we should. We have the general adversary of the world, the general adversary of Satan's minions, the fallen angels, but we also have men and women who are adversaries, enemies, and they like nothing better than to be able to find something, anything to destroy the reputation of one or more of the elders and then see the church go down because that's their objective because they hate the church. So that's why it's really important. And the man wouldn't have, now again, this isn't sinless perfection, but this would be something that would be easy to pick up on by the outside world that would then they could take and accuse the man and by association the church. That's what's important to recognize. Alright, let's go back now, starting in verse one again. First, First Timothy chapter three, verse one. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. I want you to notice that in this one among the elements that go into this choice, there's actually three. Alright. We won't go there this morning, but in Acts chapter 20. Paul talks to the overseers and the elders in Ephesus actually and says you have been appointed by the, over- by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the, that's the most important element. That, that God the Holy Spirit is on the scene ultimately making the appointment. At the same time, we have the man himself who is sensing a calling to that office and we have these objective criteria by which other elders in the congregation can evaluate that man's fitness for office. Does that make sense? The man himself, the Holy Spirit and criteria. All three of those things go into the picture. Okay. By the way, the Holy Spirit has a last say. There may be legalists among us, or among elders even, who would try to take one of these things and bring them all out of proportion and say, aha, you're disqualified. There's certain personalities that love to do that. You know? You're fired! Oh, wait a minute. Nobody laughed at that, but I can tell what season we're in. But anyway, that's The whole point here is not perfection, but to understand that there's a, a, a process, a body, a, a different perspectives, the man himself, other elders, the church, but ultimately the Holy Spirit. That all is part of how it goes about that somebody is finally appointed to this office. All right, so it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. You know, apparently this office had come under some disrepute. Some were thinking that, you know what, this office isn't necessary, or anybody who gets into that is going to abuse it. Now, why might they think that? Well, haven't we seen the behavior of the opponents and their false teaching, it's probable that at least one of those characters was actually formally or maybe still on the Board of Elders. And therefore, they were, they were kind of bringing that office down into disrepute. So he has to make the point. Seems obvious, but it's a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then, there it is again, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. I've made this point already, but I want you to see it again, written down and see it as we read through this passage again. As we go through all of this now, the different criteria, I want you to keep noticing how each one of the criteria have to do with character or the lack, which can be observed by a man's behavior. Now, of course, I'm setting up for one of these in particular where if you don't keep this perspective in mind, you could go off in a legalistic direction. Again, it has to do with character which can be observed by a man's behavior, including the behavior at the, you know, around the time when the cho- choice is being made. Okay? This is an archaeological dig. Let me put it that way. It's current behavior which can be observed, character and the lack, by a man's behavior. Now, it's also interesting that there's nothing here that's like hyper-spiritual. You know what I mean? Like a man who has sold all he has. Right? Any of those things that would associate with the the things that are only um, for those who are guided by the Spirit and have maturity. No, actually, they're mostly things that all Christians should be striving for. Right? I mean, does it make sense for any Christian to be addicted to much wine? Is God saying, now, that's a quality I want to see in a Christian. Of course not. And not all of these. But the issue is that there's heightened scrutiny on these things for a man who would be aspiring to the office of overseer. But that said, you know, this list is not really all that different from a list of character virtues that somebody might come up with in the secular world, in the business world. Right? This practical, practical things. What what needs to be true about the behavior and character of a man such that he would be trusted with the responsibilities of the office and also not bring the church into disrepute. You could say the same thing about the CEO of a corporation. So that's important to understand. All right? Yes, it's inspired by the Spirit. Every word of the, new te- of the Bible as a whole is. But notice how practical this all is. All right. So the issue again is, what are the qualities that a leader ought to have And what are behaviors that would disqualify a man? All right, so let's start out and look at the specific standards. Now, we've seen the headline, Above Reproach. Let's look at the specifics, the specific character traits, the specific behaviors that would constitute a being above above reproach. All right. Look, let's continue on verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, by my unofficial account... There's 18 different criteria here in verses 2 to 7. 11 positive, 7 negative. So as it were, a man's being scored on 18 criteria. Okay? Now you can see already that to think that you're going to get 100 is ridiculous. But here's the point. There's 18 criteria, but I dare say that this one that we're embarking on now, the husband of one wife, has been the subject of more debate than all the rest of them put together. The husband of one wife. I don't to really do this, but I want to give you the Greek for this phrase this morning because it's a really it's a key thing to see actually what it means. All right, myas gunaikos andra. All right, what does that mean? Myas one, by the way, as opposed to more than one, which gives the light of the idea that yeah, that this is talking about prohibiting men who are single. Right? That's not what this is saying. It's not saying one as opposed to none. It's saying one as opposed to more than one. Gunaikos means woman. Sometimes it means uh, wife, but not always. And then Andra is a man. In other words, a one-woman man. Now, keep in mind as you look at that phrase, what's the nature of these criteria? Character and observable behavior. I'll just throw this out. If somebody was divorced 25 years ago, is that an observable behavior now? You can't, right? Who oh, no. knows? The only reason you might know that is it would be an honest man who would be open and say, yeah, right? But if, if a man wanted to hide that, in certain cases, he'd be able to do that. In any event, you know, again, this is not an archaeological dig. This isn't what's going to happen now that there's been an appointment to the Supreme Court where they're going to dig into everything about that person's life. Did when, when she steal candy from the store when she was seven? You know, all of that stuff. No, that's not, that's not the point. Observable current behavior that reflects on character. Not a decision 20 years ago, but overall character of the man. By the way, it's likely that Paul had to coin this phrase. That's true. You know, he coined certain phrases. I don't know if you knew that. But there were some phrases that never showed up in the Greek literature until Paul wrote them. This is one of them. Which tells you that he was trying to... Finally craft this so that you get the point across and people wouldn't get the wrong idea. I mean, if he wanted to say you could not be divorced, there were more straightforward ways to say that. All right. than this. OK, so I want to keep that in mind. Although most if you look at most translations. Oh, I'm going the wrong way here. Hold on. Hold on. Most translations point to an individual's marital status. Like, I dare say, most of you maybe even thought that yourself, reading this. And again, most of the ink spilled and the sermons taught have to do with somebody's marital status. But remember, is the issue status or is the issue observable behavior? Those things can be quite different. I mean, a man could be, have, be married, right? And they're like, check, he's married, never been divorced, great. But he could be a terrible husband, right? And then... No, <laughs> Nobody, you know, he could be, like, abusive to his wife. There's all kinds of things, cheating on and all that. But, oh, he's married, check, he's fine. No, he's not. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put it this way. A man who was divorced and is now devoted to his current wife is a better pick than a man who's been married once and is not devoted to his current wife. All right, we'll see more of that. In other words, according to the, 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 the thinking of many, it would, have, it would eliminate, exclude men in these statuses. If this is now what it means, alright? But I want to just throw out there so that you're understanding what I'm saying it isn't as well as what it is. It's not being unmarried. That's not the criterion. Now, we'll talk about that because certainly there are reasons why, given the other criteria, it's advantageous to be married. But you're not eliminated on the basis of this one criteria or remarried, whether by divorce or by the death of your spouse. Or polygamous, which is kind of obvious. But, you know, you can throw that one out. Some people try to strain this to mean that. Well, the fact is that polygamy was not accepted by the, by the secular world, never mind the Christian world. It was unheard of, basically, in the Christian world. And really, you know, frowned upon by the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews. There's no, nobody thought that polygamy was okay. So, very, very unlikely. But the one interpretation that has the most favor behind it is this one. It's a characteristic of being exclusively devoted to one's current spouse. Devoted exclusively to one's current spouse. Why? Because that's observable behavior. That's a reflection of the character of the man now. Okay. This is not talking about a status or a condition that resulted from something that happened in the past, especially the distant past, but a moral quality that is currently being demonstrated. And as usual, the deciding factor in all of this is the context. Why? Because current observable behavior fits well with the rest of the qualities on the list. For example, you know, we see the expression, not given to much wine. We'll see that that means drinking to excess to the point of addiction. But if that were to be a status, all right, that would mean that this meant somebody who ever abused alcohol couldn't be in the position. That's the equivalent of pointing back on the archaeological dig when it comes to marriage. You see it? It's not talking about a, a former condition, it's talking about now. All right, same thing here. Marital fidelity to one's current spouse involves observable behavior. Behavior, not a status, but behavior. And by the way, if you think about it, that one's observable behavior now would be well regarded, not only by the Christian community, but also by those outside. That's true today. That's true today. I I mean, for whatever reason, we can argue about it. But divorce is not a big deal in the world. It is a big deal to God, by the way. He certainly says men shouldn't do it. Okay, but in the wider uh, community, the secular community, all right, the fact that a man was divorced, they wouldn't get a lot of material, for, you know, grist for the mill of the media and so forth from that, although legalistic Christians would, okay? But on the other hand, um, somebody who is cheating on his wife now, I mean, those are the kind of things that even the world will say, you know what, that exclude. I mean, we've had presidential candidates excluded from office, for example, on the basis of cheating on their wife, Prostit- going with prostitutes, homosexual behavior, and so forth. Okay. That's observable behavior, but being faithful to one's wife would be well regarded, not only in, within the church, but outside it as well. All right. And the fact of the matter is, is that the New Testament does condemn certain extramarital activity. You know, it's interesting, too. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7, I pointed this out when we were there, there's nothing there that condemns somebody who divorces his wife. It says you shouldn't do it, but it doesn't condemn the person. All right? On the other hand, there are activities that the New Testament condemns, as it were. What are those? Adultery, homosexuality, the behavior now, okay? not the status, and it's not like, oh, labeled this or that, and consorting with prostitutes. What is that? That's current observable behavior. This is what this phrase is getting at. Don't do any of that. Why? Because a leader who is doing that would be an embarrassment to the church, ultimately, when it's found out. We've had a lot of examples of that, unfortunately. As well as undermining the mission of the church, right? Brings the church into disrepute, all this discussion about hypocritical Christians and all that. So finally, I'm not going to belabor this anymore, but leadership should be entrusted to men who have a reputation for being faithful to their wives and therefore can model now to the church what a Christian marriage should be. Okay. Let's keep going. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then three words that go together, temperate, prudent, Respectable. There's a lot of overlap in these words, both in the English and in the Greek. But the bottom line is it's talking about a well-ordered and disciplined life. Somebody who's sensible, rational, reasonable, that has good judgment. Aren't these all qualities you would want in a leader? They are. Um, Self-restrained, right? Isn't mastered by his passions and emotions and lusts. And a dignity about them. By the way, that was really important in the ancient world, that there'd be a dignity about the man who would be respected by others and so forth. That's important in any generation. All right, let's keep going. Hospitable. Now, this does point to a duty of the elder in addition to a virtue. This is one place where you can see a hint of the duty, that part of the duties would be hospitality. Why? Well, it's true now, but even more so back then, You know, people had to travel long distances, and they couldn't take a flight, right, or even a train. They had to walk, okay? And so when they got to a place, they wanted to stay there for a while. And when they left, they wanted the financial support and other things that would be needed to go head to the next city. And therefore, it was crucial that there would be those among any receiving church that would be stepping forward with that required hospitality. Now, here's the thing. It would be expensive. It would involve time. It would involve other resources. By the way, resources that would be more available to an elder. All right? This is what I was saying, that being single doesn't exclude anybody. But on the other hand, being the head of a household is an advantage. But one of the things about the head of a household, of a family with children, is they got a house. <laughs> and they've got usually some space. And the other, the other factors would also suggest that there's some resources that that man would have access to that could actually provide Hospitality, both for those who are coming and going, and for those who be unfortunately uh, in a unfortunate status who are in the church who might need some help of that nature, the place to stay for a while, or even food, or clothing, definitely guidance. Okay, so this is a quality, but also it suggests the duty that the elder should have. All right, next, able to teach. There's <laughs> another one both an ability and a duty, right? The, the, the wording suggests emphasizing the ability, but at the same time, why would you say somebody would be able to teach and not expect that they would teach, right? So it's also a duty. They're saying that there is a duty that the, any elder ought to be able to teach. In other words, in a jam, or not even in a jam, right? That there would be times when that elder would teach, right? I hate picking on Steve. No, I don't. I love picking on Steve, right? Because he's a guy who anytime I, I am in a situation where I had teach, he's always ready to step up. Great illustration of what we're talking about. He would never, he would never say that his gift is teaching or past the teacher. But he is gifted for his duties as an elder to be able to do that anyway. Which, by the way, involves preparation Ability, an ability to speak in front of others. So there's a lot to it there that would be also qualities that you would want an elder to have. Right? You wouldn't want an elder to make a decision without any preparation for it. Or be unable to explain the decision to people in the congregation. So it's related to the duties and it is a duty itself. Alright. By the way, uh, please turn to Titus nine. where we see more detail about what encompasses this teaching responsibility of an elder, including a pastor teacher, but all the elders to some extent. Titus nine. Again, this is a criteria of the overseer, the elder, holding fast the faithful word. What does that mean? It means that they're studying the word of God and they're sorting out in their own thinking what's true and what's false on the basis of the word of God and they're growing Okay, holding fast, and they've got the guts to stand up for what, it, what, what the Bible says. Right, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. In other words, the teaching and the faithful word ought to be one and the same. So that, here's the reason, here's the behavior, here's the duty. He will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, the congregation, and, and this is, this is the negative side that is as important, and we see this, by the way, that Paul Paul's instructions to Timothy are mostly about the latter, or as much as the former, to refute those who contradict. Now, one must have a mastery and a confidence about one's understanding of God's word to be in the business of refuting those who contradict what's in the Bible. Right? An unprepared man couldn't do that. All right? and in fact, an unprepared man could be easily swayed all right, to move in another direction. If they're not well grounded and able to stand up for and defend what's in the Word of God. All right, back to First Timothy. We're going to move on to verse 3 as we go forward this morning. Because now, 1 Timothy 3 3, we'll read it in a moment, 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. Because now we get our first negative behaviors. We've seen a lot of positives. Right, able to teach, hospitable, right, husband of one, wife. But now we're going to get into some negatives. Verse 3 includes three negatives. But also, right in the middle is the needed virtue so that one doesn't fall into these negative behaviors. Let's take a look at it. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. All right, so there's three negatives here being addicted to wine, being pugnacious, and loving money. All of which would be fatal to the good leader, right? <laughs> if somebody's addicted to wine, all right, in other words, if somebody drinks to excess all the time, okay, they're not going to be in a good position to be the guides, the shepherds, holding on to the sound doctrine, any of the things, because their life is falling apart, okay? They're not living an orderly life, which is a, more or less a requirement, okay? Same thing with pugnacious, you know. Unfortunately, there are leaders of churches that are pugnacious, that are bullies, and they bully the congregation. That is not what the Lord wants in a leader. And free from the love of money. We'll see later in First Timothy, he's going to say, what the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's an easy way for a man to, be, to slide into being under reproach or into lifestyles and behaviors that would contradict the office that he has. Okay, let's go through this a little bit. Addicted to wine, what does this mean? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It's about what you would think. It means drinking to excess. It's not teetotaler time. It's not you can never touch a drop, right? But it says addicted. It's drinking to excess to the point where one is actually addicted to alcohol. That's what this is talking about, okay? Pretty observable behavior, you know? I heard of a situation where a teacher in a Christian school, when he's in a restaurant and was having a glass of wine, and was reported to the headmaster, who then condemned her for the behavior. Can you imagine that? That's sick. Okay, That's not what this is talking about. Again, listen to this. Drinking to excess to the point where one is addicted to alcohol. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some people, unfortunately who have a predisposition for whom, yeah, that one glass of wine might lead to some really bad behavior because they couldn't stop. Okay? So that's the person who would, who would have to say, I've got to beg off it entirely. But that's not true of most people. Right? At least I hope not. All right, what is pugnacious? Well, I'm, I've referred to it a little bit already. It basically describes a man who is always looking for a fight. You know men like that? Always looking for a fight. Any excuse to get in somebody's face. This is not a good quality for an elder to have. All right, an elder who's supposed to be patient, right? not taking, not taking into account wrongs, suffered, and so forth. Being ready to fight on a moment's notice. That's not it. Bullying behavior. No, that would be a terrible characteristic, a terrible quality for an elder to have. Doesn't mean they don't stand up for the truth, but it has to do with how they treat other people. How they treat other people. In this context, of course, it's talking about acting violently or rudely as a result of drunkenness, which is unfortunately that's one of the common uh, results of drinking to excess. You know, we have people in prison because they drank to excess or took another substance and then committed some kind of a violent act. Okay, that's this, that's that's the context for this. Although it's talking about in general. All right. Well, if somebody is pugnacious. What's missing in their character? He goes on and tells us. It's, the missing virtue is possessed by the man who is gentle and peaceable. Can you see those are opposites? Gentle and peaceable is the opposite of a bully always ready to fight. Right? So that's, that's what he's talking about. Here's a place where here's a negative behavior, but here are the positive qualities that would make it very unlikely that you would engage in that negative behavior. A kindly, peaceful leader You don't hear that much in the qualifications for an elder or a pastor. Elder, because the pastor's not in office. But the Bible says that. Kindness and peacefulness. Gentleness, reconciliation, those kind of things. Of course, you can imagine how welcome that would be in Ephesus after seeing all the disputes and the strife that the the opponents were producing in Ephesus. And then finally, free from the love of money in this list, finally. As I mentioned, the love of money, we know, is the root of all kinds of evil. But not only that, in the ancient world, it was a constant temptation to teachers. Then as now, teachers were in a position of easily abuse their office for for money. We see that in a context, not just the church, but in other situations as well, but unfortunately, especially in the church. Where after a while, it's basically this money machine that's what the church turns into all right that's not the idea all right and by the way it took added meaning again here in ephesus because we are told later on that there were actually some men who were doing that that they were looking to make the christian life and it was source of financial gain doesn't mean that the lord doesn't bless you we're talking about attitude and behavior that their behaviors were all geared towards making money in the context of the congregation no Alright, let's keep going as we're getting ready to close. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. Verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? What's the main point? It's this that family life is the best training ground for the exercise of leadership duties in the church. That's why I said there were advantages, remember, to being married and having children. Why? Because you get to, as it were, practice the kind of skills you're going to need in the congregation. Because it's an extended family. That's what the congregation is. And if, if a man you know, can't even you know, bring up his children and keep them somewhat dignified, again, this is not sinless perfection, all right? But somewhat dignified. You know, the Bible does say... You know, the behavior of the children is a reflection of the character of the father. Boy, have we seen that. Think about that. This is God's word in the context of people being brought up today without any father, when the father's around but just not involved. Why? Because it's a, the behavior of the child is a reflection of the character of the father. Now, it doesn't mean he gets to control everything, it doesn't mean if somebody turns out wrong, it's his fault. Again, this is a general principle. All right? But it does mean that those who would aspire to the office of o- o- overseer, leader, um, their children are going to be scrutinized more than other children. It's just a fact. And it's true. What's funny about it is, is that, not funny, not ha funny, but interesting, is that many times the, the worst behaved members of the congregation are children of the elders. Now, I don't know, that is just God's sense of humor. All right? But it, should, it ought not to be that way. But this is another one. Where if you were going to demand perfection in this area, and you were scrutinizing it in a legalistic way, then there wouldn't be any elders in the church, at least not married ones. All right, so there's some grace involved as well. All right, verse 6 as we, as we continue. Because these are, these are pretty self-explanatory, right? First Timothy 3, 6. Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, yes, this is spiritual discussion because it's the devil and so forth, but let's be practical. Let's have some common sense, right? If somebody were in an organization for six months and it was their first job out of college, it really wouldn't probably be a wise idea to make them the CEO of the corporation, right? I mean, come on, right? Why? For a couple of reasons, experience and wisdom. Right? Those are qualities that are really important and the leader in a leader, and the church is no different. The Greek word for new convert is interesting. It's, uh, it means newly planted. I, I like that, newly planted. It pictures the same thing about, you know, we would kind of like the elder to be an oak tree, right? But, but the one who has recently become a believer is a new plant, you know, a lot of hope. By the way, a lot, of, a lot of energy excitement and quick growth and so forth, but not really in this, in this condition where he would become the leader. Recently became a believer. It's interesting because those, those people are often very enthusiastic and are often, you know, sh- talking a good fight about all that they're going to do and how in fire they are and everything. So there is a certain attraction, all right? They would say, wow, that's what we need, okay? But, you know, the Bible says that a man must first be, temp- be tested and tempted. And so it's really kind of a longer run. Right? It's not just, oh, but it's also behavior over time and a growth and so forth. So notice the strong language here. Why shouldn't it be a new believer? Because they will be, could become conceited. Arrogance, the Greek says, a head full of smoke puffed up. Absol- as, as you think about it, that's what happens when somebody's promoted too rapidly. You know, they, they somehow think that it's all about them, that, wow, I must be super duper, and all of a sudden, head full of smoke. But if you picture a head full of smoke, they can't see anything. You know, that's not a, that's not a good leader either. All right, so, and also condemnation incurred by the devil. That's strong language. Condemnation incurred by the devil. But the, but the main point here is that an arrogant man makes for a truly awful leader in the church. It's a, a, an arrogant man makes for an awful leader in the church, and I use that word awful uh, intentionally. Humility, the opposite, is a quality that's really important. Because the look look the, the elder has uh, access to a lot of specific you know situations that people are going through. If they're arrogant, either in the point of view, I would never do that, right? or arrogant from the point of view of having no sensitivity to anybody else but themselves, that is a terrible quality for an elder to have. I don't think I have to go too far with that. The condemnation incurred by the devil, by the way, that's the judgment that the Lord placed on Satan, who also became puffed up to the point that he thought he was better than the Lord. That gives you a sense, right? There there are young people who are... Um, young men in particular who are in the congregation and every week they come out and they talk to their friends or their girlfriends or even their wife and says, I could do that better. I found five mistakes that, that the pastor spoke of today. Or, you know, they're being much too patient with this one. I would hammer them right away, you know. That's just the nature of being, you know, well, not everybody, but, but that's something you have to grow out of. You have to grow out of, which is why they have to be tested or they could fall into the same judgment of the devil who was puffed up, became thinking that he was better than the Lord. Finally, verse 7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. When it comes to leadership, the evaluation, the judgment even of the secular world is a legitimate concern. You know, a lot of people want to say what goes on in the church is nobody's business. That would be nice if it were true, but it's not true, okay? It, it's, it's the business especially of people who want to see the church fall flat on its face. And we have to keep that in mind. We can't avoid that, all right? It's a legitimate concern. What is this saying? It means he must be spoken well of by the unbelieving community. Now, that doesn't that sound like somebody who has to compromise their doctrine? In order to get that to happen? Well, it would if the issue were what the man teaches. But here it's not the issue. It's not what a man teaches, but who a man is. The behaviors that are observable, those as it were, will be scrutinized and the church should care about that. Why? Because our mission is to go out there and preach the gospel to people. And if you have a situation where all they have in their head is how, how their leader of this organization has fallen under reproach and the people in it are all kind of associated with him. That, that organization is not going to be that effective in its outreach. That's why. Okay? It's not that they have the right to judge us. They don't, but they will anyway. And therefore, we need, to be, uh, we, have our, we need to have the behavioral standards so that we don't give them any ammunition. And I'm talking about the leaders when I say that. All right. Man who is in the snare of the devil as we close here today, you know, Second Timothy tells us that that person has actually been k- taken captive to do the will of Satan. Those are the stakes. That a man who would fall into disrepute and be, and could be judged even by the standards of the outside world is close to, if not already in the grasp, it's language. Now, it doesn't mean that Satan actually physically has him in a headlock, but it means that, that he's been captured as it were to do the will of the devil, to continue in that behavior, to continue to bring shame upon the church and so forth. All right, well, that's tough language to end up with this morning, but we're not going to end there because we're going to end with a note of grace, which we have to have. Remember, I said there's 18 criteria and nobody gets 100. All right. The fact of the matter is that there's no man anywhere in the church or anywhere else that will measure up perfectly to all these requirements. Oh, yeah, you, you probably have a great marriage, but what about that whole thing about being, you know, a bully, right? Oh, whatever. I, I'm picking on those two, but it could be any. There's 18 of them after all. So no one's going to be perfect. So get that, I, I, get that thought out of your head. A lot of people turn into legalists on this material. They, they think somehow that if they can find one fault in the man, that they can tell everybody, and then that man is disqualified. <clears throat> you know? Well, that's atrocious. Okay, I'm not just saying that because I'm an elder and a pastor. Because here's the, here's the standard. If you want to use that standard for the leaders, guess what? These are criteria that we all should aspire to. So you better start with yourself, even though you're not a leader, and get some humility and realize, wow, what would my score be on those 18 criteria? You know, as, as, as the Lord said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, that sounds like a contradiction between fair game and no what it's saying is is that our our attitude should be one of graciousness for everybody but in this context any man who would be aspiring to that office no matter who you are you will fall short and i think anybody who's got any internal honesty would see that but here's the thing remember when we said there's three parts of this there's the aspiration of the man the criteria and then there's god and as we've seen so many times in the scriptures, God chooses imperfect men. Let's go right back to Paul himself, right? In chapter 2, what did he say? He says, I am the worst of all sinners, and yet the Lord picked me as an example for the grace and the mercy that he will have towards whosoever. God chooses imperfect men, sometimes obviously imperfect men, hello, um, who are nonetheless, they're fitted For the work—that's the issue. The Lord doesn't expect perfection, but does expect a certain quality of character that's been developed and formed. And by the way, He'll provide the things that are missing. All right? There's nobody who walks into the job perfect, or walks out of it for that matter, and there's no Christian who does either. But the fact of the matter is, we know that He who began a good work, and you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we should give one another grace particularly in this area. The Lord knows who's sufficiently qualified and that the spirit will be continually working inside that man to enable him to succeed in his calling. That and the prayers of the congregation as well. All right, let's close now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning for presenting these criteria so that we can objectively understand the kind of qualities that a man who is aspiring to the office of overseer ought to have understanding that no one is perfect. We also ask this morning, Father, that every one of us would adopt more of a humble and loving and forgiving attitude towards everybody in the congregation. As a matter of fact, for those in the outside world as well, so that we could be good witnesses of the real truth of the gospel, which is that we've all fallen short and you've given us the gift of your Son and who believes in him is justified forever. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Speaking of October, Thursday is the first day of October. So that's our, our evening for Bible study. And uh, anybody in the world can be a part of our Bible study. In fact, we have, let's see, we have people from Africa, Canada, and the Philippines who regularly join us on Thursday evenings. So I'm guessing, given that's the case, and given in certain cases it's like midnight, right, wherever they are, I'm I'm imagining that, you know, most people who live in mm, South Florida wouldn't have the same obstacles. But, you know, that's just me. And it is. It's part of the ministry of the church, right? You are missing out if you're not a part of that. All right? Every Thursday, 6.30, Skype, we're going to be on just our, our last lesson on eternal security, and then we'll be moving on to something else. If you do need a link, and some of you may be here and haven't done it yet, you can email Mark Pomeroy, and he will provide you what you need to do to get onto Skype. By the way, we also have our weekly prayer meeting at the end on Thursdays. Um, So we, again, encourage you also to provide us any prayer requests. The easiest way is to go on our website. And you see right at the first page, it says, I think it says, Can we pray for you? Couldn't be any simpler. You just click on that and type it in there. It magically appears on this list that I look at on Thursday about 5 o'clock. And there it is. We haven't been getting many lately. I don't know how that could be, given what's going on in our world and our congregation. I can't believe that. So please let us know so we can pray for the things that you need us to pray for. All right. Giving policy. You, most of you understand that we go by the principles of giving in the letter of 2 Corinthians, okay? which means that it ought to be a, ma- a matter of your own heart and the way that the Lord has blessed you financially. You put those two together, you find out that you have gratitude for what the Word of God means to you, and therefore you have a desire for others to also have a share in that, and that's the motivation. Not because people will think bad of you if you don't give your 10%. All right, that's not what the Lord's looking for. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. Right? The widow gave all that she had. Not that you have to give all you have, but there's a principle of what's in your heart. You understand why you're giving. You freely want to do it. You're happy about it. That's what the Lord wants. Okay. By the way, he also wants the church to go on. So this <laughs> is not an excuse not to, but it's an excuse to do it's a reason to do so in the proper attitude. All right. Gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what needs to go out of this building. And it's it's simple. We're all born sinners. None of us could ever do anything that would be enough to earn our salvation. None of us could ever do that. Okay? We sing about that in some of the beautiful hymns, right? God must save and God alone, right? He, He saves me from wrath and he makes me. It's all God's work. But here's the thing. God decided that rather than let us all fall into the pit of hell, so to speak, the lake of fire, because he loved us, he was going to give us the most precious person in the universe. And he did. The Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And he, because he was human as well as God, was able to do what nobody else could do, which is to die a death, which would mean that all of the sins of the world be placed on his body. And he would die for all the sins of the world because we could never do what needed to be done. And then he was placed in the grave and our sins were placed there with him. And then on the third day, he was risen from the dead by his father to life. It is humanity that is overwhelmingly wonderful and eternal. And then he turns around and he says, now, you can't work for this, but I'm giving it to you as a gift. And it's simply a matter of hearing the good news and believing it. And that's it. You, you hear the gospel, the message, you believe it, you're saved, you're justified, you're given eternal life, you're sealed for the day of redemption. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you also today for the good news of your word. We should never get tired of hearing it. We should be trained to the depths of our hearts on what it is and what it means so that we will be good witnesses, good ambassadors for whosoever comes across our path, we can give them a reason for the hope that lies within us. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. As always, um, if you have any questions today, you can email me. I encourage that too. I get, I get more emails than prayer requests these days, but I don't know why that is. But. Um, so fair's fair. I'm going to give Mark's email address and you am going to give mine too. But please, I encourage you, if you've got anything bothering you, if you've got like, gee, I always thought this, and you said something today that was that, And can you please help me with that? Because while I, um, you know, I, give you the, I give you the highlights, and I want a message that's pretty straightforward to take in, there's a lot behind it. And it might be things that certain, so you may from time to time need in order to be you know, convinced of whatever's being taught. So by all means, if that's happening, just send me an email and I'll do my best to answer it. All right, you're dismissed. Enjoy Sunday and hope you have a great week in the Lord.